This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Today, I'm going to jump right in because we have a great guest and there's going to be a lot of really good information for people who sort of have that thing where all along they felt like they just want to work for themselves. Dustin Wells is the CEO of Headspring. And you know, he never felt like he wanted to work for a company. He started off as a musician. And then when he and his wife had their first child, I think somebody, probably his wife, said, hey, you have to go get a job. So he went to work for a company for a while, but that didn't last too long. It didn't take him much time before he jumped in and started his own business. So we're going to talk about the journey that Dustin has taken from being a one-man show to one of the fastest growing companies in Austin, Texas, as well as I also hear that he's starting a new venture. So maybe we'll hear a little bit about that as well. Hey, Dustin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. So you started off, you know, you, you were a musician and then you decided that you had to go get a real job and that real job didn't really resonate with you all that much, did it? Yeah, real jobs are tough for me because you have to work on someone else's schedule, right? And I always wanted to work for myself. I, you know, I never set out to be an entrepreneur. I set out to work, not work for someone else. And if I can control that schedule and have that flexibility, that's what was really important to me. So you left the job that you had and you started doing what? You were, is if I'm not mistaken, you started designing websites. Yeah, so I started designing websites at first. I was self-taught. I have a music degree, right, as, as you mentioned. And so I started from literally reading HTML for Dummies. That was my first book that I read. And I wrote my very first website based on that book for $500. And I just thought I was in it at that point. So I was really excited that I was able to bring some money into the household, right? Because my wife was supporting me while I was getting started in the, in the new business. This was back in 2001, uh, you know, right before 9-11. I was in April, actually. But the economy, when you're a one-person sh- shop, doesn't really affect you, I learned. You know, my first year in business, I was 18,000 in revenue, second year, 45, and sort of went off to the races after that. So your wife had a full-time job, so you had income coming in, you were able to pay the mortgage, and you had health insurance, so that gave you a little bit of a cushion to get those first two years rolling? Yeah, as long as I can put my ego behind me, right, that gave me plenty of cushion, which I had no problem with, by the way. So I was glad to have the support from, from Megan, my wife. It was excellent to have that foundation, because what I learned is... I thought I'd be able to get things going a lot faster, but it takes a solid two years to get most businesses going where there's some kind of sustainability and income for the entrepreneur. Well, I even think sometimes it can take as many as five years. I've found like with my own business, you know, the first two and a half years we hemorrhaged cash. It took a long time to sort of get that stability going. And so I think, you know, that's something that a lot of people don't think of when they look at your company and how successful it is and all the employees you have and all the great, you know, Fortune 1000 companies who you now work with. People forget you were one guy in your kitchen for a long time. Yeah, exactly. I was one guy in my kitchen for four years. I had some offshore guys I used at times, but never had my first employee until 2005. So you, start, just, 
So you started off doing the websites, but then what happened? Yeah, so it started off with websites, and I'm just as part of who I am, I'm all about continuous improvement. So how do I always get better? And that's really in anything that I do. But that really applied here as well because I started with a $500 website and then I went to database-driven sites and then I went to physical software applications that weren't even running on the web. And so how do I always get to that next level so we can deliver more value for clients and so we can get to the more complicated areas of business so we can really serve those companies in a different way? So what does HeadSpring do today? Well, today we're a lot different from the beginning. We serve Fortune 1000s in enterprise software so that means enterprise software, mobile, and cloud enablement. So we basically come in and we write or help them uh, update and upgrade their legacy systems that are really core to what runs their company. And how many employees do you have now? We're right around 100 right now. So what's been the biggest change going from sort of a solopreneur to having 100 employees? And obviously that didn't happen overnight, but what's the biggest difference for you as an entrepreneur? It's interesting because I've had to go through all leadership changes when I'm by myself, I was literally the sole contributor making cold calls, doing sales meetings, and then delivering the work at night, you know, putting in that 80 hours a week for the first two years. As I got my first set of employees, that shift from contributor to manager was formed to me because, again, I had one job where I was bottom of the totem pole. So I had no experience at all with management. So accepting that responsibility that other people are looking to you to help guide them in their career was really formed to me. And then you know, where we're at today is I, I refer to myself as the chief of culture. I, I don't feel like I do much now because I go to meetings and I talk to people and I'm sure people are supported and have what they need to be successful. My job is to create an environment where they can be successful and thrive and grow. So how did you kind of learn how to do that? I think when conversations we've had in the past, past you talked a lot about the importance of mentors for an entrepreneur. Yeah, so I was smart enough to know I didn't know anything at all in, when I got started. And so I went out and sought a mentor from an organization called SCORE, Service Corps of Retired Executives. And I had really good luck with the, that group. I had a guy that I ended up being with for the next three to five years. I met with him every week. And what I learned is no matter what business you're in, someone that is in a completely separate industry than you. He was in the bowling business, for example, and I'm in the software business. But I learned more from him about business than I did from anyone else. So how did you go about finding someone at SCORE? Was it they just assign it to you? How does that work? Yeah, you know, I, I just got lucky. I, I went into the office, and this old guy comes out, kind of kind of cranky, doesn't smile at all, and calls my name. I put it on a little list when I got there. I go in and talk to him. Uh, he's not that talkative. He doesn't seem very nice. He's trying to scare me away, I think. And so he sort of dared me to come back and get more help. And so I took him up on it, and I came back the next week, and then I came back the next week. So after about four weeks, he realized it wasn't going away, so he actually started to help me. So now that you run this, this large business, what, what do you love most? What do you love most about being an entrepreneur? Well, the, the best part that I've seen so far, so I, I, I'm a big fan of Maslow, right, and the hierarchy of needs. And if you look at the bottom part, that's about survival. The second part is about success. The third part is about transformation or self-actualization. And so I can map HeadSpring through that entire cycle. First four or five years, all about survival, Next couple of years is about success. That's where we got recognized as Inc. Magazine, uh, you know, fastest growing companies, uh, Fast 50, of course, best places to work and things like that. But my favorite part now is, is we're in that top of that pyramid where we get to be transformational. So we're having such a huge impact, not just for employees. We have employees that can grow here faster than anywhere else. 
but also for our clients where we're making huge impacts, where we're literally saving lives with the software that we're putting out uh, versus that mindset of writing lines of code. And then the, the coolest part is all of these things combined kind of pull in the same direction leads us to this huge community impact that we can have that we'd never be able to have individually. So that's my favorite part is just the impact that we can have on those three stakeholders. So how do you manage your, you're married and you have, you have, is it two children, three children? Yeah, three kids. So how do you Eight, manage? 10 and 16. How do you manage keeping, you know, up with an 8, 10 and 16 year old and, and still have a marriage and, and balance all of that side of your life? I, I feel like I do it really well, but my, my wife might have a different opinion. Uh, so I think that, um, Again, I wanted to be an entrepreneur so I could have flexibility in my schedule. And so I really try to balance the schedule where I'm home for the kids at least one day a week when they get off the bus. I put the laptop away on the weekends and at night. I don't do anything related to work. And I try to have that focus time where I'm present. It's easy to be at home as an entrepreneur and have a thousand things going on in your brain. And you're with your kids, but you're not really there because you're thinking about something else. So how do you just be 100% focused in that moment? So do you talk to your kids about entrepreneurship? Uh, so we, we do talk a little bit about it. I think more exposure to them comes through conversations I have with my wife about what's going on. So we'll talk about the business or things that are going on, challenges, successes, and failures. And either my kids are going to roll up their sleeves and can't wait to be entrepreneurs or they're going to be so scared of it that they never want to go near it because of the stories they've heard. Well, I have a 17-year-old, and, and she wants to go into business. I don't know that she wants to start her own thing or if she wants to work for a large company and, and rise to the top and make it larger. But one of the things that you know she says when people ask, why are you you know interested in business? She says, because my parents work for themselves, and she does. She listens as we talk about the finances and the sales and you know sort of the pieces of that. And, and she watches the fact that to make business happen, I have to travel. And you know she gets it. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I think a lot of people might shield their kids from that. We're super transparent. I am at the company, and we are at home. So, I, I mean, my oldest knows how much we make. He knows what our revenue is. He knows what our profit margins are. He knows what if we're having issues with a client, he knows about that. If we're having successes, he knows about that. So we just talk about it all. Yeah, and I mean, I'm a, I'm a one-man business, and so it's really, you know, just, just me, but but my kids know all that stuff as well. And, and I hope in the long run that it, it makes them, you know, embrace the idea, whether they're an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur. I mean, if, I believe if you're going to work for a big company, you still want to be a person who goes out and makes your own way inside that company. And I hope that that's what they get from, you know, me being transparent and talking about the finances and the sales and the client relations and everything that goes with it. So, you know, as you, you know, have grown this company, you've probably now had the chance to mentor other people. Yeah, so I am a big fan of giving back in a lot of different ways to the community, but mentoring is one of those ways where, and I think Austin's a cool community like that because no one's going to say no to a meeting if you ask them and you're respectful about their time and and, and are clear about what you want to get out of that relationship. So I, I go mentor at uh, local incubators here in town. I have a couple people that come to the office once in a while. So I'll always say yes to uh, to mentorship if people are interested in that. So how do you feel like, you know, you talked about the guy from the bowling industry had a real impact on you. How do you feel you've given back and made an impact on some of these younger entrepreneurs? Well, you know, I'd like to think that I've, I've had an impact and I think that I have because I've seen certain people adopt things that we do and they've made it their own at their company and they've attributed a lot of different success to that. But it's not any one thing that I told them or that, that someone else told them. It's those, those individuals really 
getting up every day, doing things that make them uncomfortable, that they don't want to do. They make a habit of doing those things, and that's what makes them successful. So I don't have any kind of ego or arrogance to think I'm the one that helped them get from A to B by any means. So you are known sort of around Austin and beyond as being really focused on corporate culture and how important that is to the success of your business or any business. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about what that means? What is corporate culture? So I love culture and I didn't always love culture. And that was one of those transformational things as as a CEO growing up, right? As the company got bigger, that became our, really our secret sauce. And that's what makes us who we are. But culture is, Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Today, I'm going to jump right in because we have a great guest and there's going to be a lot of really good information for people who sort of have that thing where all along they felt like they just want to work for themselves. Dustin Wells is the CEO of Headspring. And you know, he never felt like he wanted to work for a company. He started off as a musician. And then when he and his wife had their first child, I think somebody, probably his wife, said, hey, you have to go get a job. So he went to work for a company for a while, but that didn't last too long. It didn't take him much time before he jumped in and started his own business. So we're going to talk about the journey that Dustin has taken from being a one-man show to one of the fastest growing companies in Austin, Texas, as well as I also hear that he's starting a new venture. So maybe we'll hear a little bit about that as well. Hey, Dustin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. So you started off, you know, you, you were a musician and then you decided that you had to go get a real job and that real job didn't really resonate with you all that much, did it? Yeah, real jobs are tough for me because you have to work on someone else's schedule, right? And I always wanted to work for myself. I, you know, I never set out to be an entrepreneur. I set out to work, not work for someone else. And if I can control that schedule and have that flexibility, that's what was really important to me. So you left the job that you had and you started doing what? You were, is if I'm not mistaken, you started designing websites. Yeah, so I started designing websites at first. I was self-taught. I have a music degree, right, as, as you mentioned. And so I started from literally reading HTML for Dummies. That was my first book that I read. And I wrote my very first website based on that book for $500. And I just thought I was in it at that point. So I was really excited that I was able to bring some money into the household, right? Because my wife was supporting me while I was getting started in the, in the new business. This was back in 2001, uh, you know, right before 9-11. I was in April, actually. But the economy, when you're a one-person sh- shop, doesn't really affect you, I learned. You know, my first year in business, I was 18,000 in revenue, second year, 45, and sort of went off to the races after that. So your wife had a full-time job, so you had income coming in, you were able to pay the mortgage, and you had health insurance, so that gave you a little bit of a cushion to get those first two years rolling? Yeah, as long as I can put my ego behind me, right, that gave me plenty of cushion, which I had no problem with, by the way. So I was glad to have the support from, from Megan, my wife. It was excellent to have that foundation, because what I learned is... I thought I'd be able to get things going a lot faster, but it takes a solid two years to get most businesses going where there's some kind of sustainability and income for the entrepreneur. Well, I even think sometimes it can take as many as five years. I've found like with my own business, you know, the first two and a half years we hemorrhaged cash. It took a long time to sort of get that stability going. And so I think, you know, that's something that a lot of people don't think of when they look at your company and how successful it is and all the employees you have and all the great, you know, Fortune 1000 companies who you now work with. People forget you were one guy in your kitchen for a long time. 
Yeah, exactly. I was one guy in my kitchen for four years. I had some offshore guys I used at times, but never had my first employee till 2005. So you, start, just, so you started off doing the websites, but then what happened? Yeah, so it started off with websites, and I'm just as part of who I am, I'm all about continuous improvement. So how do I always get better? And that's really in anything that I do. But that really applied here as well because I started with a $500 website and then I went to database-driven sites and then I went to physical software applications that weren't even running on the web. And so how do I always get to that next level so we can deliver more value for clients and so we can get to the more complicated areas of business so we can really serve those companies in a different way? So what does HeadSpring do today? Well, today we're a lot different from the beginning. We serve Fortune 1000s in enterprise software so that means enterprise software, mobile, and cloud enablement. So we basically come in and we write or help them uh, update and upgrade their legacy systems that are really core to what runs their company. And how many employees do you have now? We're right around 100 right now. So what's been the biggest change going from sort of a solopreneur to having 100 employees? And obviously that didn't happen overnight, but what's the biggest difference for you as an entrepreneur? It's interesting because I've had to go through all leadership changes. When I'm by myself, I was literally the sole contributor making cold calls, doing sales meetings, and then delivering the work at night, you know, putting in that 80 hours a week for the first two years. As I got my first set of employees, that shift from contributor to manager was formed to me because, again, I had one job where I was bottom of the totem pole. So I had no experience at all with management. So accepting that responsibility that other people are looking to you to help guide them in their career was really formed to me. And then you know, where we're at today is I, I refer to myself as the chief of culture. I, I don't feel like I do much now because I go to meetings and I talk to people and I'm sure people are supported and have what they need to be successful. My job is to create the environment where they can be successful and thrive and grow. So how did you kind of learn how to do that? I think when conversations we've had in the past, past you talked a lot about the importance of mentors for an entrepreneur. Yeah, so I was smart enough to know I didn't know anything at all in, when I got started. And so I went out and sought a mentor from an organization called SCORE, Service Corps of Retired Executives. And I had really good luck with the, that group. I had a guy that I ended up being with for the next three to five years. I met with him every week. And what I learned is no matter what business you're in, someone that is in a completely separate industry than you, he was in the bowling business, for example, and I'm in the software business. But I learned more from him about business than I did from anyone else. So how did you go about finding someone at SCORE? Was it they just assign it to you? How does that work? Yeah, you know, I, I just got lucky. I, I went into the office, and this old guy comes out, kind of kind of cranky, doesn't smile at all, and calls my name. I put it on a little list when I got there. I go in and talk to him. He's not that talkative. He doesn't seem very nice. He's trying to scare me away, I think. And so he sort of dared me to come back and get more help. And so I took him up on it, and I came back the next week, and then I came back the next week. So after about four weeks, he realized it wasn't going away, so he actually started to help me. So now that you run this, this large business, what, what do you love most? What do you love most about being an entrepreneur? Well, the, the best part that I've seen so far, so I, I, I'm a big fan of Maslow, right, and the hierarchy of needs. And if you look at the bottom part, that's about survival. The second part is about success. The third part is about transformation or self-actualization. And so I can map HeadSpring through that entire cycle. First four or five years, all about survival. Next couple of years is about success. That's where we got recognized as Inc. Magazine, uh, you know, fastest growing companies, uh, Fast 50, of course, best places to work and things like that. 
But my favorite part now is, is we're in that top of that pyramid where we get to be transformational. So we're having such a huge impact, not just for employees. We have employees that can grow here faster than anywhere else, but also for our clients where we're making huge impacts, where we're literally saving lives with the software that we're putting out uh, versus that mindset of writing lines of code. And then the, the coolest part is all of these things combined kind of pull in the same direction leads us to this huge community impact that we can have that we'd never be able to have individually. So that's my favorite part is just the impact that we can have on those three stakeholders. So how do you manage? You're, you're married and you have, you have is it two children, three children? Yeah, three kids. So how do you Eight, manage? 10 and 16. How do you manage keeping, you know, up with an 8, 10 and 16 year old and, and still have a marriage and, and balance all of that side of your life? I, I feel like I do it really well, but my, my wife might have a different opinion. Uh, so I think that, um, again, I wanted to be an entrepreneur so I could have flexibility in my schedule. And so I really try to balance the schedule where I'm home for the kids at least one day a week when they get off the bus. I put the laptop away on the weekends and at night. I don't do anything related to work. And I try to have that focus time where I'm present. It's easy to be at home as an entrepreneur and have a thousand things going on in your brain. And you're with your kids, but you're not really there because you're thinking about something else. So how do you just be 100% focused in that moment? So do you talk to your kids about entrepreneurship? Uh, so we, we do talk a little bit about it. I think more exposure to them comes through conversations I have with my wife about what's going on. So we'll talk about the business or things that are going on, challenges, successes, and failures. And either my kids are going to roll up their sleeves and can't wait to be entrepreneurs or they're going to be so scared of it that they never want to go near it because of the stories they've heard. Well, I have a 17-year-old and and she wants to go into business. I don't know that she wants to start her own thing or if she wants to work for a large company and and rise to the top and make it larger. But one of the things that, you know, she says when people ask, why are you, you know, interested in business? She says, because my parents work for themselves. And she does. She listens as we talk about the finances and the sales and, you know, sort of the pieces of that. And, And she watches the fact that to make business happen, I have to travel. And, you know, she gets it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of people might shield their kids from that. We're super transparent. I am at the company and we are at home. So, I, I mean, my oldest knows how much we make. He knows what our revenue is. He knows what our profit margins are. He knows what if we're having issues with a client, he knows about that. If we're having successes, he knows about that. So we just talk about it all. Yeah. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a one man business. And so it's really, you know, just, just me, but, but my kids know all that stuff as well. And, and I hope in the long run that it, it makes them, you know, embrace the idea, whether they're an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur. I mean, if I believe if you're going to work for a big company, you still want to be a person who goes out and makes your own way inside that company. And I hope that that's what they get from, you know, me being transparent and talking about the finances and the sales and the client relations and everything that goes with it. So, you know, as you, you know, have grown this company, you've probably now had the chance to mentor other people. Yeah. So I am a big fan of giving back in a lot of different ways to the community, but mentoring is one of those ways where, and I think Austin's a cool community like that because no one's going to say no to a meeting if you ask them and you're respectful about their time and, and and are clear about what you want to get out of that relationship. So I, I go mentor at uh, local incubators here in town. I have a couple people that come to the office once in a while. So I'll always say yes to uh, to a mentorship if people are interested in that. So how do you feel like, you know, you talked about the guy from the bowling industry had a real impact on you. How do you feel you've given back and made an impact on some of these younger entrepreneurs? Well, you know, I'd like to think that I've, I've had an impact and I think that I have because I've seen certain people adopt things that we do and they've made it their own at their company. 
and they've attributed a lot of different success to that. But it's not any one thing that I told them or that, that someone else told them. It's those, those individuals really getting up every day, doing things that make them uncomfortable, that they don't want to do. They make a habit of doing those things, and that's what makes them successful. So I don't have any kind of ego or arrogance to think I'm the one that helped them get from A to B by any means. So you are known sort of around Austin and beyond as being really focused on corporate culture and how important that is to the success of your business or any business. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about what that means? What is corporate culture? So I love culture and I didn't always love culture. And that was one of those transformational things as as a CEO growing up, right? As the company got bigger, that became our really our secret sauce. And that's what makes us who we are. But culture is is interesting because I feel like my job as chief of culture is to create an environment where people can grow faster here than they can anywhere else. And if I'm successful in that, then they're going to stay here. They're going to give us 110%. They're going to benefit from that growth. And our clients are going to benefit from that. And that allows us to make a bigger impact on the community. But how do you really impact the culture of your company? What do you do? There's, so there's a lot that you can do. And it, it's taken over five years to get to where we're at right now with small incremental steps and we're always finding improvements, back to that idea of continuous improvement. But there is a framework that we've put in place to help with that. And so I, I have written about it on my blog, which we'll share later on where that is. But it's about creating this you can core share foundation. It. You can share it now. If somebody might not make it to the end, what's your blog? Yeah, it's, so it's DustinAWells.com. And there's, three, there's a three-part series about core ideology. And so that's the foundation. And then on there, I show you the stack that we use that literally is the foundation for our company. It's our entire company in one page. And here's, so here's where it starts. is It starts with a foundation of, of what we call a core ideology. It never changes. And that's made up of our why. Like why do people come here every day when they can go anywhere else for the same or more money? The war for talent is so competitive right now that literally everyone could leave my company on Friday and have a job on Monday for the same or more money. So why do they come here every day? And that helps with that sense of purpose. The second part is around core values. And you can't just have core values. Enron had core values etched in marble, and we saw how that did for them, right? Uh, They have to be alive and well in the company. And then the last thing is just a greater sense of, of purpose versus, you know, we're not writing lines of code, we're saving lives, right? We're not writing lines of code, we're helping NASA win the space race. So what are we doing that's contributing to a greater purpose? So what would you say to someone who is with your company, who has grown a lot, who, who is kind of on the fence? Should I stay or should I go? How do you convince them that you're the right place to be? Well, we might not be the right place to be anymore. And so I think as long as they're growing and they're professionally, personally, and they're getting more value out of Headspring, then they should stay. And so we actually just had a guy, he's been with me seven years and he was very transparent about the entire process, but he shared a couple of new opportunities that he was looking for, and we agreed together that he should go take it. He had more opportunity now at a different company than he could here. And while that makes me uh, sad that we couldn't provide that, I'm really happy for him and want to see him be successful. And I think that the best entrepreneurs that I know, actually, I've worked for several people who really have had that idea that, you know, do a great job while you're here with me. And when the next opportunity comes around, go and do a great job there. And we'll just be glad for the time that we had together. And I think that, you know, sometimes people get like, no, I don't want that to happen. I want to hoard everybody and everything. And I think that some of the people who've been the most successful are ones like you who have the attitude of, you know, let's do what's right for that employee. 
Yeah, it's funny because like investing in training for employees is another example of that. Like, well, I don't want to train this person up if they're just going to leave and go to the competitor, right? But that's so short-sighted. And investing in people and helping them grow, some of them might leave and go to the competitor, and I've had that happen. But the majority of them stay. They give you 110% back because they know that you're helping them grow and they want to help you grow. Well, and that's funny that you bring that up because I do a lot of training for companies and sometimes you'll get some pushback that people are like, nah, we don't really like to do training because if they leave, you know, same thing, they start their own business or they go to a competitor and I always chuckle. I'm like, so let's have a whole stable full of mediocre people <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> instead of making everybody that stays the best they can be. And I, I've never really understood that attitude. And as a trainer, it sort of makes me laugh when people are like, no, I want my people to stay right at the level that they're at. And it's like, well, good luck with that. Yeah, it's it's short-sighted. It's silly. I, I, I get it. I mean, again, we're transparent with salaries, with revenue, with profit. Uh, and a lot of companies hold that to the best, too. So the more information that people have, the more that they can grow, the better they're going to be able to do for us in the long run. So on this show, I've talked to a lot of people who are solopreneurs or, or very small businesses, maybe just a couple of employees. So, you know, you're one of the few that I've interviewed so far who have really grown something, you know, to 100 plus people. So if someone is out there listening and, and they want to go start their own business, and often I think that I'm thinking my audience is me 10 years ago. You know, they're working for a company. They want to go do their own thing. I don't really have a desire to have a company with 100 employees. Mm -hmm. However, somebody might be listening who that's their, their dream. They want to start a company and grow something really Really tangible. What do you tell that person who is wishing they could go out and do it, who hasn't pulled the trigger yet, or maybe they're the solopreneur who's looking to grow? What advice do you have for them? I think that, and I've gotten this question a lot. The first thing I, I tell people is have enough runway financially where you can give it two years. I think in my experience, in a, through watching people and through my own personal experience, it's taken a good two years to get any kind of noticeable traction in a new company. And I'm talking about bootstrapping companies here, not VC-funded companies, which is kind of a totally different deal, right? Uh, and so that's n number one. Number two is get up every day and have the discipline to do things that make you uncomfortable. Get outside your comfort zone. So let's talk about that. What do you do that gets you out of your comfort zone? Well, you, you mentioned earlier, I have, I have a new startup, for example. And while I'm CEO of this company, I'm co-founder of this new company, and literally, I'm making cold calls. So, what is the for new company? Business. What does the new company do? So, we're a mobile platform that helps employees and companies connect at a, a greater level. So, basically, how can you monitor real-time employee sentiment before it turns into turnover and customer churn? So, what is it like to run one company and be starting another one? So, it's hard. And so, I have a president that's great at Headspring that helps me run that company. And then I actually have a CEO of the new startup. So I'm co-founder and the CEO is the co-founder as well. So I'm not the main guy in charge of either of these things, which is the only way that I can imagine doing it to make it possible. So, you know, you got to keep a lot of balls in the air to be doing the type of work that you're doing. You know, what about people who don't have that type of experience? I mean, do you just wing it? Well, you know, there's a saying, you got to fake it till you make it, right? Um, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. If you know something's possible but you haven't quite gotten to the point where you can prove that you can do it, it's okay. That's how I grew Headspring. I knew it was possible to write database systems, and I went and figured it out after I sold it. And, of course, now we're more mature, and we don't need to do that. But getting the first couple customers is the hardest. And, and make a promise, and then you have to be able to back it up, of course, and it's going to be a money loser for the beginning 
as well, but make that promise and make it happen so your first couple customers are ecstatic about you. I actually think that's really good advice because I watch a lot of people, especially in my industry as, as a speaker, who spend years building their website and their programs and their classes and they don't have any customers. And I almost think sometimes it's better to go out and sell the customer and then go custom create that class for them because you could spend years developing something and no one wants to buy it. Go out and find out what they want to buy and then go build it. Yeah, that happens a lot, actually. And I think it's an excuse to not go out and talk to people because it makes people nervous. It's an excuse not to make cold calls, right? I want to get ready to get ready, so to speak. And there's a whole new movement in startup world referred to as a lean startup. And it's just that. It's going out, getting customer feedback before you build anything. And I'm a big fan of that. So who else do you see out there doing something cool? We could talk about Headspring all day long and all the things you've done. But, you know, I think as an entrepreneur, you're an observer. So what do you see out in your community or your industry where you say that person is really out there crushing it? So I've been a huge fan of a couple of colleagues and what they do that I find really unique and interesting that we've actually adopted over the last couple of years is the community engagement side of things. It's called corporate social responsibility, CSR, you know, double bottom line, all those things. But how do you leverage the company and get all those people in the same direction for company goals, but for a community impact? And so because of those influences for me, we've created uh, something called Grow and Give, where if an employee refers someone to us, we'll give $2,000 to that employee, and then we'll give them $2,000 to donate to the charity of their choice. Oh, that's great. We have a, yeah, it's a cool program that makes them feel great about donating, but we're not replacing you know, that intrinsic desire for them to want to work with other cool people with an extrinsic reward of money. We're replacing it with money and something that has an impact on the community. So um, what else do you do? You talked a little bit about, about mentoring and stuff. What else do you do to give back to that greater good? You're obviously very involved in giving to charity just based on that program. Yeah, that program is going to be uh, great as far as giving. We'll probably give over $100,000 away to charities that our employees have picked, which is really cool. Uh, we've got a Give Camp program where we've donated over $250,000 worth of services to nonprofits over a three-day hackathon. We've done that for three years. And that's been a great program to bring everyone together and use our skills for, for the community. These are employee-led initiatives. I don't drive these. I don't come up with these ideas. These are initiatives that people come up with that are passionate about it, and we just help them and enable them to do it. In our last episode, I interviewed Hugh Forrest from South by Southwest, and one of the things he talked about was how many of their charitable activities are really driven by their community. It's not the main office saying, hey, we're going to donate time or money here. It's what the South by Southwest community wants to do. Do you find by letting your employees sort of drive these initiatives, they take more ownership in it? Well, I, I do find that. I think they take a lot more ownership and it has more meaning to them. So we've got two different things that we've done recently that were employee-led that we just jumped on the back of and helped support. And one was a backpack drive where year one, uh, one of our employees went out. They'll do a matching for any employee that donated backpack with school supplies for kids. And I think he got about 50 backpacks. The next year, we did it as a company initiative, and we, we got about 1,500 backpacks wow. for kids in Austin. Wow, that's huge. So, I mean, the impact, right, that we can have as a company is so much greater if we leverage that in the right direction. And um, so, yeah, employee-led initiatives are great. The other one we had this year was a shoe, a shoe drive where one of our guys was trying to collect shoes that they could send to kids that were in need. Literally, they don't have anything that they can call their own except this pair of shoes. And so we got on as a company. We did a match. I personally did a match. My president did a match as well. 
And, and, you know, it's a small thing that we can do that has a really big impact for the employees and for the people that they're serving. So, Dustin, one more thing before we kind of wrap this up, and that is I'm a real big believer in mentor mentoring, which we talked about, but also of peer groups. I am a real big believer in the whole concept of the mastermind group. I belong to a group of five professional speakers. We get together twice a year in person. Every other month throughout the year, we get together via a Google Hangout, and we really share sort of sort of the deep dive with our company, with our businesses, and, and what we're trying to accomplish with our companies. And then everybody becomes like a little sort of informal board of directors to really drive people forward you know, throughout the year and hold mm-hmm. each other accountable. I know you have been really involved in the entrepreneurs organization. And uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about why you think that's been so helpful. Yeah, so I've been a member of Entrepreneurs Organization, or EO, for, I guess, eight years now. And I joined immediately when I qualified. And the biggest value that people get out of that is a small group called Forum. And that's about nine to ten people that are members. To be a member of that group, you have to be a million dollars or up in, in revenue. And it's been great, especially the longevity of some of these groups, where I've been in one for over five years. So I've seen people go from point A to point B and make decisions along the way and have been around to see the outcomes. So just growing from that experience is invaluable. But then the big part about about EO and Forum is about experience sharing. So I'm dealing with this, this, and this, whether it's personal or work or whatever. And I get to hear other people's experiences, not advice about how I should about how they handled something like that in the past. And that helps me make a better decision that's more informed moving forward. So do you recommend people get involved with either a Vistage or an EO or a YPO or form their own group as I did uh, if they're trying to get, get their business off the ground? Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of EO. I'm also a member of YPO and I'm in a forum there as well. So so big fan of those organizations because the structure is already there and it's been proven over the last 25 years about how these small groups can run. There is a lot out there about mastermind groups and I know uh, some people that are involved in those as well. And if I wasn't already in two groups, I'd probably do one of those as well. And so it doesn't matter if you're part of that organization or not, like get, get in a peer group and get commitment to meet at least once a month, if not more often. And there are structures to run those meetings so they're really productive. And I'm happy to share that later on with people if they want to reach out. But also there's a lot that's written about masterminds and forums and things like that. So yeah, absolutely getting involved in that would help a ton. So, Dustin, we already mentioned your blog, DustinAWells.com. How else can people reach you if they listen to this interview and they want to know more about you or your companies, et cetera? Yeah, so our company website's headspring.com. Our, my new startup is GetWorkify. It's W-O-R-K-I-F-Y.com. And then my Twitter handle's at Dustin underscore Wells. So we'd love to hear from anyone or, or have them reach out if they want to follow up. Excellent. Well, thank you for being a guest on Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. You've always been one of these entrepreneurs here in my community who I've respected because you really have sort of been the one who has been that out there slow and steady growing your business you know, since 2001. So congratulations on all your success. Thanks, Tom. And for those of you who tuned in and listened, thank you very much for listening to another episode. Go on out there and have a great day and we will catch you next time. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at, at @TomSinger. This podcast was produced in part by Podfly.net. Podfly, passion for great sounding podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.